Lakeview. Good to see you. Thanks for making it out this morning. Hey, Nancy. So, we're in a sermon series. It's called Retell. It's about passing along the unique stories from the Gospel of Luke. So if you didn't know, uh, there are four Gospels. The Gospels mean the good news about Jesus. And they're told from four different perspectives. So you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And some of them have stories in common, obviously. And then some of them have stories that are unique. And so we're reflecting on what are the unique passages uh, from the book of Luke that um, give a unique angle on the Jesus story. And today, we're focusing on the calling of the disciples in Luke 5, verses 1 to 11. So if you want to find that spot, you go right ahead. Now, Jesus was in the business of calling people into the work So there's the work that he had to do in order to inaugurate the kingdom of God. There was the work that he had to do in order to preach and teach and heal. And then there was the work that the apostles eventually had to do. And Jesus called all kinds of people into all kinds of work. And what's interesting about this call that we're going to be reading about uh, this morning is that it not only went to someone, so in the story, their name's Simon. Uh, Does anybody know what Simon's name got changed to later on in the story? Anybody? Anybody? Peter. Yeah. And so the calling of Simon or Peter, we're going to even give him a brand new name today that you might not have heard. Um... This call went to him. He called others through his own preaching. Uh, And then people who heard that preaching called others. And this call of Jesus into the human world continues throughout history. And it's going to happen to you today in this room. You're going to hear the call of Jesus today in reading these words in, in, in practicing community with one another. But if we read through the book of Luke, we want to think a little bit about who are some of the people that got called. So we're going to first meet with some fishermen. Those are people Jesus called. This is not because Jesus was starting a commercial fishery. That's not why he needed fishermen. He, he called people around him. And fishermen, of course, were hardworking folks. They hardly had, they were not exactly well-educated. They were not rich. They were not powerful. These were not people with connections. They survived on their wits and the strength of their own backs. As, as the story will unfold, we'll notice that Jesus calls tax collectors. Now, these are people with money and power and connections. But one of the things we notice about when Jesus calls tax collectors is he asks them to get rid of all of that stuff in order to follow him. And, of course, he calls people who are poor, oppressed, and marginalized 
Again, what are you doing, Jesus? Uh, Why aren't you spending your time with people who can really get things done? You want to get this kingdom thing off to a good start, don't you? Well, these are the people that Jesus calls, the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized. He calls political revolutionaries. So these are people who want to throw off the oppression of the Roman government. They are the kinds of people who will protest, they will start riots, and they will even use violence in their struggle. And then, of course, he calls religious fanatics. These are often the people we we might refer to as uh, Pharisees, and these are folks who are convinced that God has essentially abandoned Israel because of their sinfulness. And so if we want God to heal us and heal our people, then we need to live righteous lives. And once we live righteous lives, God will start paying attention to us again and start siding with us in these epic battles that we need. So the political revolutionaries were trying to change the politics. The spiritual fanatics were trying to change the spiritual climate. And then, of course, you have religious sellouts. He, God calls them too. And the religious sellouts were people who used their faith as a hiding space to keep the, to keep the peace, to live a quiet life. They were selling out. And of course, we're going to hear about later on in, in other chapters, we're going to hear about uh, a particular individual, a rich young ruler. This is a young man who, who had all that he needed. He had lots of power, lots of connections, lots of money. So these are the kinds of people that Jesus calls. And, and the thing that's the pattern here is the people you would imagine Jesus should call if he wants to get things off to a good start, he tends to ignore And then he calls everybody else. So really what that is saying to us is that he calls everyone. He calls people like us. So what does Jesus call people into? Well, essentially, it's to become an apprentice of Jesus. It's a lifelong process of learning to live like Jesus, to allow every aspect of our lives to be shaped into the likeness or the form of Jesus, head to toe, inside and out, in our relationships, in our society, and in our world, to live like Jesus lived, to speak like Jesus spoke, to act like Jesus act, acted. And the, 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 one of the key questions of today is, what did it cost someone to follow Jesus. What did it cost people to follow Jesus? And what you're going to notice in the New Testament, as Luke unfolds this story, as this story gets unfolded throughout the New Testament, not everyone pays the exact same costs. The cost of following Jesus actually depends a lot on your own starting point in the world. It depends a lot on where Jesus finds you, what he finds you doing. So here's just a few examples. So for religious people, it was to stop using their faith as a weapon. 
to stop using their form of moral uprightness as a way to blind themselves to their own sin and to their own un-Jesus-like attitudes toward others. For the sellouts, it was to stop hiding behind their complacencies and attempts to bed down and make peace with a bad world. Jesus meant to, following Jesus meant to wake up to the struggle, to engage in struggle. For tax collectors and rich young men, it it would actually cost them their money and their power. Following Jesus meant giving it all away. For the tax collector, this meant doing justice because tax collectors earned their money. They collected taxes for the sake of the Roman Empire and they made their living by skimming a little off the top. It was understood. And so essentially, they would rob people blind. And so, to be a tax collector and a follower of Jesus, it cost a tax collector their ill-gotten gain. They had to do what was right. They had to repair the wrongs that they had done. For the rich young ruler, he didn't have ill-gotten gain. But it meant severing a a dependence on his money. It meant severing a connection that it had on his identity and and his sense of safety and self. For the political revolutionaries, it was to find new ways to throw off oppression. The political tools and the aims that they swore allegiance to were at times in direct competition with the Jesus way and the kingdom that he was bringing into the world. Their way gave them all kinds of permission to take lives and to live in self-righteous judgment of those who wouldn't join them. Following Jesus meant learning to fight evil using God's tools in God's way. This was who Judas Iscariot was. He was a zealot. He was a political revolutionary. For the people who were marginalized, it was to throw off the varying forms of oppression that had settled in their hearts and souls and bodies. They were not who their oppressors said they were. They were God's very good creation. They were God's beloved. They were chosen. And God was especially fond of them. As we read last week in Luke 4, Jesus had been sent to them in specific. Remember how it says he came to give sight? He came to set the prisoners free? He came to heal people in their bodies? For the poor and marginalized, following Jesus meant placing their hope and trust in God. In a hope and trust in how God was fighting for them and how God was reordering the world and how God was about to do things the rich and powerful knew nothing about. Jesus' mom, Mary, she she prayed this prayer before he was born because she saw what God would do through the life of Jesus. And her prayer mentioned a few things like this, that he would scatter the proud in their conceit. That he would cast down the mighty from their thrones. That he would lift up the humble. That he would fill the hungry with good things. That he would send the rich away empty-handed. In short, Jesus was about to reorder the entire world. 
So, for today's passage, um, I've decided to do something just a little bit different, and we're going to be reading from the First Nations version. So, this is uh, translated by uh, um, uh, an indigenous person um, into language and forms that he and his community understand. And the beautiful thing about the message of Scripture is that it's intended for all people and it's translated into the language and the speaking style of all people. And in this way, Scripture belongs to us all and yet none of us own the Bible. The Bible isn't written in English. It was translated for us and it's been done so many times. And so what I like about the First Nations version is that it allows me to see God's word, word that I've heard and stories that I've heard many times, but see it in a brand new light. Hear it in a different voice. And I think you'll know what I'm talking about uh, when we read this together. But what I want you to pay attention to as we read through this text together is the brackets. So if you're, if you're used to this passage, the brackets are the English names, okay? Just to keep you straight, pointed in the right direction, the brackets represent the English names. So we're going to read this whole chunk together. It's 11 verses, so um, just sit back and relax as I read the scriptures to you. As creator sets free, so you see that in brackets, that's the name given to Jesus. And that literally is what his name means. That's what's so fascinating about this. This literally is what all of these names mean. As Creator Sets Free was teaching at Lake Chief Garden, a great number of people pressed in to hear him speak the words of the Great Spirit. He was standing on the shore and saw two fishing canoes, but the fishermen had left their canoes and were washing their nets. He climbed into the canoe belonging to one who hears, that's Simon, who will later be called Peter, and asked him to push out a little from the shore. He then sat in the canoe and taught the large gathering of people. And when he had finished speaking, he said to one who hears, push out further into the deep water and throw your nets in for a catch. Wisdom keeper, he answered, we have been fishing all night and caught nothing, but because it's you who ask, I will do it. They threw the net out into the water, and before they knew what was happening, the net became heavy. They struggled with the weight of it and began to pull it in, but the net was so full of fish, it began to tear. They called out to the other canoe for help. The men came and began to pull in the nets. Fish of every size poured into the two canoes until they were so full they began to sink. When one who hears, along with his fishing partners, he takes over and he shows goodwill, the sons of gift of creator, saw what had happened. They were filled with wonder and awe at the great catch of fish. One who hears fell on his knees in front of creator sets free. Wisdom keeper, he groaned, go away from me, for I am a bad-hearted and unholy man. 
Do not fear, creator sets free, told him. From now on, your nets will catch two leggeds. When they, when they returned to the shore, they left everything and began to walk the road with him. So as we dig into this story this morning, I want us to pay attention to three particular costs of following Jesus. It costs us our scorecard, it costs us our independence, and it costs us our control over the future. So let's start by talking about our scorecard. One who hears, who will later be called Stands on the Rock by Creator Sets Free, finds himself caught up in a big story. In a story that he did not see coming. One day he's coming off a, 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 one morning really, he's coming off a long, unsuccessful night shift as a fisherman, and the next day he is face to face with Jesus. He hears Jesus preach, and he believes at some level Jesus' message, or at least he's intrigued by it somehow. Just enough to listen to a carpenter's voice or advice about commercial fishing. He decides, he knows that he will be unsuccessful if he follows Jesus' advice, because it's not good advice. Anybody who does any kind of fishing knows that you, once the sun has basically risen, once the day has started, really the fishing's over until evening. But he does what he's told, and one who hears heads off into the dark, or into the deep, and discovers that Jesus actually knows what he's talking about. Everything that one who hears knows about life, knows about getting around in the world, his scorecard itself is thrown out the window. He thought he knew how the world works. He thought he understood his place in it. He thought he understood the rules. But as he received Jesus' call to be his apprentice, one who hears quickly learns how little he actually knew. So what in the world is God doing in all of this? Well, I'm going to show you a very impressive PowerPoint animation. Are you ready? I worked on this all night. What is God doing in the world? Well, in our world, all of us exist in communities. All of us have systems of beliefs. All of us have scorecards. All of us belong to groups of people, to ideas. We form ideas. We, we have these scorecards. And what is God doing in the world? Well, the world has dividing walls between these communities. There are communities at war with one another. There are people who say this, and then people who say that, and the this and that people fight. They don't see each other as human often. And what is Jesus doing in the middle of this? 
Well, he is calling us out of the broken heart of the communities, of the lives that we live, and he's calling us toward himself. He pulls us to the edges of our communities. And the Bible says that he is doing this because out of us, the people who have been called out of the broken hearts, out of the scorecards of this world, and into his life, he's forming us into a new humanity. One that is here, but not complete, not finished. Something that will be revealed in time. And why does God call us toward himself into this new humanity? Well, part of his work is to take down the dividing walls of hostility that exist in our world. This is the work of God. He calls us out of our lives and asks us to enter into something brand new. So, when God calls us, he calls us out of the broken hearts of our various identities, starting points, beliefs about the way the world works, attachments, vows, protected selves, traumas, willingness to be killed or to kill. All of these people, from all of these places, invited to join Jesus in what Jesus is doing in the world. And what is Jesus doing in the world? It is the reconciliation of all things and all people. So in Revelation 7-9, it gives us a picture of what this is going to look like. Here's what it says. After this, I saw a great crowd of people, too many to count, from every nation, tribe, clan, and language. They were standing before the seat of honor and before the Lamb, dressed in pure white regalia, holding palm tree branches in their hands. They lifted their voices and shouted, The power to set us free and make us whole belongs to the Great Spirit, who sits upon the seat of honor and to the Lamb. So who are the people gathered around the seat of honor? Some of these people are sworn enemies of one another. And following Jesus has set them free from their wars. It has healed them from their wounds. It has united them together around the seat of honor. Some of these people were killers and oppressors. And they were set free from their death-dealing ways. Healed in their hearts and minds through acting justly. And they're united around the seat of honor. And some of these people were the oppressed. And God turned the tables of the world. And God set them free and healed their hearts and minds and restored to them all that they lost. And he invited them to take their place around the seat of honor. God works in all and restores all. This is the work that we trust This is the work that we must commit ourselves to as a church. So what else does it cost us to follow Jesus? Well, it costs us our independence. Now, that might not sound like much of a cost, but if your goal is to become a self-made person, 
This is quite a high price. Now, notice that one who hears, once he discovers who creator sets free is. It took a miracle for him to see that. It took hearing the voice of creator sets free. But once he discovers who Jesus is, he cannot bear to be seen by him. That's a strange reaction, don't you think? He cannot bear to be seen by him. He cannot bear to be in his presence. He cannot bear to be known by God. This need to stay away from God goes back to the earliest stories of humanity. When Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they could not bear to be seen by God. Their son Cain, when he had given a sacrifice to God and, and knew that that sacrifice didn't please God, rather than dealing with that, that sinful, broken aspect of him, asked, tried to hide from God. And he saw his brother as the real source of the problem. He immediately went out and killed him. And Cain couldn't admit to himself what he had done, so he lied about it, and he tried to hide the body. This hiding is a part of the human story. What about being called by God costs us our ability to hide? What about our the call of Jesus in our life forces us into relationship with him. Let me tell you a little bit about how the Christian story works, how it plays itself out in our lives. Most of us, when we first come to Jesus, are attracted to him because he can do something for us. He can heal us. He can forgive us. He can love us. He can... He can reach out to us. He can speak to us. And we love God for what God can do for us. And that's often where we start in our faith journey. But before long, we realize that holding on to ourselves is not worth it. There are parts of ourselves that, as we are holding on to it, prevent us from going deeper into that story. And so eventually we love God enough to give God our whole selves. So at first we love God because what God will do for us and then we give ourselves to God. The story doesn't end there, of course, because there are parts of you that are created by God. There are parts of you that are an expression of the identity and the image of God. We are given gifts. We are given blessings. We are given wholeness and healing. And God offers our transformed selves back to us. And if we want to continue following Jesus, we have to take the good stuff in us seriously. And so we receive ourselves back. But then we realize, what is the point of having all of this transformation if we can't give it to God and to others? And so we hand ourselves back to God. 
and we hand ourselves to others. Because we want to become like Jesus. Jesus is a servant of all. Jesus practiced downward mobility. Jesus did not consider being God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. And so because we want to imitate Jesus, we begin to try to give ourselves away. And guess what giving ourselves away does? It exposes deeper attachments. It exposes other places. It exposes new gifts. As we begin to practice those and we hand them to God, God transforms them and hands them back to us. And then we receive those and then we give those back to God and to others. It is an ongoing interrelatedness that is a deep part of our calling. What one who hears saw at first when he met Jesus was not this whole process. What he saw was his own sinfulness and Jesus' power. And he was under the impression that if he were to connect his life to God, he would evaporate. He would be instantly destroyed. He didn't have a vision for what God could do. He didn't have a vision for how God could transform him. He didn't have a vision of this back and forth beautiful story. But as he moved deeper into life with Jesus, his eyes were opened, his identity began to shift, his name eventually changed to Stands on the Rock. And he went from a catcher of fish to a catcher of the two-legged. What one who hears learned about God and himself, he did not see coming. But this is the relationship we enter into whenever we respond to God's call. What else does following Jesus cost us? It costs us control over our future. When you enter into this story, you are no longer the one in charge of where it goes. You're no longer the one in charge of where it goes. You see, following Jesus meant all kinds of twists and turns for one who hears. This road took him to hearing Jesus teach, witnessing amazing miracles of, of terrifying and, and baffling uncertainty. This road led him to the cross, to conflict with the empire. It led him to deny Jesus. It led him to watch Jesus die and believe that this story was all over. And then it led him to the resurrection. And then it led him to having his ministry restored. And then it led him to being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then it led him to preach to the Gentiles. And then it led him until his boat was nearly sinking. This man, one who hears... If he saw where it was all headed, he might not have said yes. But Jesus made it possible for him to always take the next step along the road. Now, you guys might have noticed that on Facebook, I asked the question, uh, what has it cost you to follow Jesus? There's about 75 comments on that thread. I was a little surprised by how much that resonated with people. 
I encourage you to go check that out and, and, and read some of the things. Because here's some of the stuff that people have said it's cost them to follow Jesus. One of the things is being close to family. Some people, their ministry lives or their life direction meant they had to leave proximity to family and move somewhere else. That's my story. I, I did not grow up here. But I'm here because I'm following the calling of Jesus in my life. For others, they said, it's being held with suspicion by your friends and neighbors or fellow students or co-workers. For some, they said, money and positions of power and influence. Uh, for others, they said, a sense of control, putting ourselves in vulnerable places where we might look foolish or ridiculous because the scorecards don't add up anymore. Some said our comforts, conveniences, and preferences. Some of them reminded us that we go to church with all kinds of people. And last week, when they discovered 54 additional bodies of babies that were killed in the residential school system, People we go to church with, I mean, I don't mean like broadly, I mean this church at Lakeview. What it costs them to follow Jesus is not only to live and experience the trauma of that loss, but also to go to church and worship the same God of the people that ran those schools. Can you see how much this costs? Do you understand who you go to church with? Everyone in this room is at some stage of this story. Some stage of responding to this call. Our lives are heading in directions that we may not fully understand or have total control over. Some of us are stuck this morning. We see the costs ahead of us and we're unsure we want to pay them. We're uncertain we can take another step. There is someone here this morning that is in that spot. They're stuck. Some of us have recently received ourselves back from God. We see our lives right now and what God can do for us and we want to give ourselves over to Him again. Some of us are getting called deeper. We need to hand something over to God. But we might be afraid, or we might be nervous, or we might be about to take the leap to step out in faith. Some of us are stepping into something new, something bigger than ourselves, something that we could barely see or fully understand, but we're taking that step in faith because we know that we're called. And friends, this is why we meet together every week is to live out this story, to encourage one another. We're here to grieve with people who grieve. We're here to celebrate with people who've got something to celebrate. This is who we are together, each of us responding to God, whether with fear, nervous, anticipation, or gratitude. So, my friends, my parting words for you today are this. Go easy 
on each other. Everyone in this room this morning is fighting a secret battle you know nothing about. Each of us counting costs that are between them and their creator. So go easy on each other. And instead, choose to be in one another's corner. Let's pray. Spirit of truth, direct our attention to the life of Jesus so that we might see what you want us to be. Make us like him, teachers of your good way. Make us like him, performers of healing miracles. Make us like him, proclaimers of your kingdom and your deep peace. Make us like him, lovers of the poor, defenders of the oppressed, open to the leadership of children. Make us like him, silent when the world tempts us to respond on the world's terms. Make us like him, ready to be servants who suffer. We know we cannot be like Jesus, except as Jesus was, unlike us, your son, the Messiah. Make us cherish that unlikeness, that we may grow into the likeness made possible by Jesus' resurrection. Amen. Thank you.